uh, come to consider this together. Now let's pray before we come to God's word. Father, we pray now that you'd help us to focus our hearts and minds on you. That you'd help us to focus our hearts on this chapter, this passage that's before us. Lord, we know it's hot, we know it's difficult to concentrate sometimes, but we pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We want to see something of ourselves, but we want to see more of Christ. Speak to our hearts, we pray this morning. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Whose victory uh, is it anyway? Uh, Maybe that's a question that we find ourselves uh, asking all too often in life. You know, we get a crucial game of football uh, and your team needs to win and the scoreline ends with a 1-0 scoreline and we say, well, whose victory is it? Maybe it's a discussion. Was it the goal scorer or was it the team? We read that Nelson won the Battle of Trafalgar and we say, well, whose victory was it? Was it Nelson's or was it a combination of him and his skillful crew? We often say, don't we, Churchill won us the war. But was it truly his victory or was it his inspiring leadership along with the bravery and willingness of so many? Whose victory is it anyway? In our passage this morning, you may have picked up that we are given quite a bit of information about David's victories. David was a skillful, brave warrior king. He had great armies fighting alongside him. But the question that we ask ourselves as we look at David's victories is, whose victory is it? Now this passage helpfully tells us the answer to our question. And I want to put this as the banner over the whole chapter. We read it there in verse 6b and again in verse 14b. These two verses or these two parts of these verses are key to understanding this chapter. We read there, don't we, verse 6. That it, was de- that it was the Lord who preserved. Some versions translate, it was the Lord who gave victory to David wherever he went. And we need to keep that in our minds as we work through this chapter because otherwise we're going to go off in all sorts of tangents and probably miss the main point of this passage. It was the Lord who preserved. It was the Lord who gave victory to David. Now chapter 8 is an unusual passage um, If you're trying to slot it into the storyline that we've been going through, you'll probably find that you struggle to do so. And the reason is, you're not actually supposed to be able to slot this nice and neatly into the storyline of David. Chapter 8 is a summary chapter. It's like the narrator is giving us a break in this storyline to tell us and to summarise the key information. This 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 passage, this chapter, talks of things past. It talks of David's past victories. It talks about what has happened thus far. It tells us something of what happens in the present as David responds to those victories. But it also gives us a report of the things that are to come. And most importantly, chapter 8, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert because if you fall asleep for the rest of this service, you need to see this. Chapter 8 is a wonderful foreshadowing and an anticipation of God's better king, Jesus. Chapter 8 describes David's victories over the kingdoms of the north, the east, the south, and the west. 
Our passage doesn't tell us that, but those kingdoms that are mentioned are situated in those areas. In other words, David's kingdom is established when all of his enemies are utterly destroyed. Those in the north, the south, the east, and the west. David's kingdom is established when all of his enemies have been defeated. It should jump out the page at us when we hear that phrase. Because God will finally, completely establish his final promised kingdom through the utter destruction of all those who oppose King Jesus. Jesus will finally reign when all of his enemies have been put under his feet. And that's a really key thing to remind ourselves. So what about this passage that we have before us? Well, I want to look at three verbs. I'm not, going to, I'm not making it technical, but I just think these verbs are really, really helpful to split this passage up. I'm not going to split it up very neatly because it's a summary. But I'm going to split it up with these three words. Defeating, dedicating, and reigning. They're the three things we're going to look at this morning. In some ways, as we look at the past, present, and the future under these three categories, it's a little bit like the Old Testament version, if I can say this reverently, of the Christmas carol. We see a little bit about the past in David's life, we see a little bit about the the present, and we see a little bit about the future. And it is there to illustrate one big point, as we've already mentioned, I'm going to keep saying it because I want it to be flashing in our minds by the end of our sermon this morning. It is God who made David victorious wherever he went. Hopefully we'll have this ingrained in our minds by the end. So let's begin by just looking at the past. David defeating. Most of David's life, as we've seen it so far, has been marked with these battles. Some of those battles have been ferocious. Some of those battles have been intense. Some of those battles have been tough. Some of those battles at times have almost seemed impossible to win. And perhaps David's biggest enemy was, in many ways, Saul, who throughout most of 1 Samuel seems to pursue David intently and he was not willing to give up. He wanted to get rid of David. And yet we read here, chapter 8, Saul is gone and God has given David victory over all of his enemies. Now we do need to be a little bit careful and I'm just going to do a little bit of a pause here before we move on. We need to be careful that we don't end up going down an unhelpful side road because we know that David is God's chosen king. We know that. He's the one that, that is, is the one that's the man after his own heart. We know all of that. And we know that David foreshadows Jesus in many ways. But we need to paint the picture and we need to be clear that, David, that God does not always approve of everything that David does. But it does seem clear from this passage that God does seem to approve of these victories. There are many things in David's life, and we're going to see some in the coming weeks, that God does not approve of. But he does seem to approve of these victories. You know, I think the reason for that is clear, that these, these enemies that David has had victory over, they're not just David's enemies, are they? They're not just people that David has fallen out on, on over. These are people that are enemies of God himself. And so these victories are essential. God approves of David's victories because in order for God's kingdom to be established, it was essential 
that these enemies were destroyed. And maybe we can be forgiven for thinking all the way through 1 Samuel and perhaps even thus far, David's promise that he received from God just doesn't seem to be coming, does it? Will David ever get his kingdom? Will it ever be established? Many times in 1 Samuel we read, didn't we, that David narrowly misses death. Saul on many occasions was just a fraction away from killing him. Many times, David, we read, escaped and fled and hid. And we think, will it ever happen? Will God's promise to David ever come true? The answer's simple, isn't it? Of course it will. Because God keeps his promises to his people. And God is able to save his people and save his king from all the enemies. And so we read, the Lord saved David, or the Lord preserved David from his enemies wherever he went. And of course, firstly, he saw that he got the victory over the Philistines. They are in the west, verse 1. Isn't it interesting as we contrast David and Saul, Saul never ever gained victory over the Philistines. In fact, the last time we read of the Philistines was in the Philistines' great victory over Israel. When Saul was killed and all of his armies with him. And here we see this reminder in this first part of this chapter that David had done what Saul was supposed to do. David has done what Saul had failed to do. David has subdued the Philistines. And the main idea really I think here is that with the, with the, when the enemy was subdued, the land received rest. It's a common theme, if you were to read the book of Judges, it's a common theme throughout the book of Judges. With the enemy subdued, the land enjoyed rest. In other words, the Philistines will disturb Israel no more. But actually, when you take it back to the Hebrew word for subdued, it takes it a little bit further. The Hebrew word kind of means to be humiliated, to be humbled before God. So what are we to make of that, with that, with that definition? One day, all the enemies of King Jesus will be humbled before him. One day, however powerful those enemies might be, however successful those enemies might be, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 2, David defeated the Moabites of the east. Do you remember that land of Moab? Descendant from Lot's son, a land that was continually hostile to the Israelites. They refused to give Israel safe passage through their land when they were leaving Egypt. And if you remember from, from the book of Numbers, Balak, Moab's king, made this failed attempt to prophesy a curse against Israel. And instead, the prophet Balaam in Numbers 24 prophesied that by a scepter who would rise out of Israel, Moab would be defeated. Here in this chapter, we read, don't we, that David was that scepter that would rise out of Israel, that would defeat the land of the Moabites. Isn't it interesting? The Moabites were excluded from God's family because of all those things. Yet isn't it amazing as well, as we think about the land of Moab, the demonstration of God's amazing grace, as David's great-grandmother Ruth came out of that land, accepted Israel's God, brought into the family of God. God will have mercy on those he will have mercy on. The grace of God is amazingly surprising, isn't it? 
Could anyone good come out of Moab? Maybe you're surprised about the grace of God in your life. Maybe you're surprised that God chose to save you. But he did. Nevertheless, David's actions against the Moabites, they were pretty severe, weren't they? It seems maybe from reading of the text that David killed two-thirds of those he captured and preserved the other third. We're not given any reason, any explanation for why David would do such a thing. But I think John Woodhouse, one of the commentators, helpfully suggests that we should approach this section in this way. That rather than mounting our moral high horse and condemning David's actions, we should take it as a reminder that the righteousness and justice of God's kingdom includes his judgment on all rebellion against him. When you really think about it, the wonder of it all is not that two-thirds were killed. It was that one-third were preserved. God's mercy and patience is for one reason. To give people time to come back to him. And what happened to the Moabites is a reminder, isn't it? That God's mercy will not go on forever. That one day, his patience will come to an end. And because God is a God who is good and just, he has to deal with sin. He has to deal with those who turn their back on him. And maybe this morning you need to heed that warning. One day God is going to judge the whole world in righteousness. And the most important question, we we say it often, where will you stand? David also defeated Hadadezer of the north. I only really want to make one point about Hadadezer and this defeat in the north. We read this guy was a king of Zobar. His name means Hadad is my help. I won't be surprised because I had to look this up if you ask who on earth is Hadad. Hadad is an ancient pagan god whose name means the one who smashes. And this was the pagan god, according to his name, was the one who was supposed to help him. I think it's quite clear, isn't it, by what happens to Hadadezer, this god did not prove much help in his time of need. Isn't it a reminder that the the gods of this world utterly useless? Utterly useless. They might promise so much. You might think you can gain many victories in this life by following after the things of this world, but when it really counts, useless. When you come face to face with God, nothing. Useless. Money, sex, power, they're all the main gods of this world, but there are others. If you live for these things, you will always come up short. I remember a scene from the Titanic film. I'm not sure if it actually happened in real life. It may well have done. Um, But as the ship was sinking, one of the first-class passengers went up to the first officer who was in charge of getting people onto the lifeboats. And he presented him with a large sum of money to guarantee him a space on the lifeboat. And off he trots, doing whatever he wants to do, making the most of the free food and drink or whatever else he might be doing. And when he came back to make good on that deal, when the reality hit that many people would die and there wasn't enough lifeboats for even half those on this ship, the first officer threw the money back in his face. And he said this, your money can't save you any more than it can save me. Now get back in line. 
It's a reminder, isn't it? In life, he probably got everything he wanted by the money he owned. But when it came to the crucial time, when it came to death, his money couldn't save him any more than it could save anyone else. Now, of course, in our life, we don't face the problem of not having enough lifeboats. There are enough lifeboats for all those who would come to Jesus. But may we never, ever fall into the trap of thinking that anything of this world will guarantee our space. May we never fall into the trap that we think that the things of this world will do anything for us when we are faced with death. David also struck down the Edomites in the south, verse 13 and 14. Not just a couple of hundred. This was a great defeat, wasn't it? He struck down 18,000 of them. And of all of the nations that were mentioned in these victories, perhaps the Edomites were the closest relatives of Israel. Yet similar to the Moabites, they were hostile. They refused safe passage in Numbers 20. And just like Moab, Balaam again prophesied in Numbers 24, the defeat of Edom. Edom shall be dispossessed. One from Jacob shall have dominion and destroy. This isn't the first time we've come across the Edomites in this story. Do you remember Doeg back in 1 Samuel? One of Saul's little faithful followers. Nobody else would do what he wanted. No one else would slaughter the priests. So he relied on Doeg, who utterly destroyed all of the priests, the women, the children, the livestock. Utterly wiped them out. And with David's destruction of Edom comes the promise. The fulfillment of God's promises to his people. We read there in verse 13 that as a result of all these victories, David makes a name for himself. I think we need to be clear, that doesn't mean that David is now puffing himself up. I don't think it's him using this as a way of boasting, look at, look at all that I've done. We'll see in a moment that's not true. I think it means that having been given these victories by God, He has made a name for himself under God. People know him. People know him across the nations for all that he has done, but not for his own glory, for God's. We could say it this way, couldn't we? God has given him a name and he has fulfilled his promises to David. It's a bit like Jesus, isn't it? God's ultimate king, he's crushed, mocked, rejected, killed. But then God raised him. And now he has given him a name which is above every name. And one day every knee will bow. Well, that was the longest part, you'll be pleased to know. So let's move on to the present, David dedicating. You know, we might praise the one goal scorer. We might be happy to say that Nelson won the Battle of Trafalgar. We might be happy to say that Churchill won us the war. But what about David? Was he the greatest king? Was he the most victorious king? I think if David were here this morning, he would not want us to remember him for his victories. He would not want us to remember him for his many successes. And I don't think from reading chapter 8 that the narrator wants us to remember David in this way either. We've just spent much time thinking about David's great victory and it was important that we did that because it reminds us of the goodness and the mercy of God. But let's just look at chapter 8. As we think about how David responds to these victories. David is almost left holding this vast amount of treasures. The gold, the silver, the bronze. That he's collected from all of these nations. 
And maybe we think, well, what on earth does David want all this for? We know in the past that Saul has collected loads of things. He's kept hold of the best. Is David's motives in the wrong place? Is he he trying to do things in the wrong way? No, verse 11 and 12. David did one thing with these treasures of his victories. He dedicated them to the Lord. David knew that victory did not belong to him. Victory belonged to God. Victory only comes to those who wait on the Lord. That's the difference with Saul. Saul did it in his own strength. David waited upon the Lord. So David didn't keep the plunder for himself. He didn't keep it for his own benefit. He didn't keep it to puff himself up. He gave it back to God. Interestingly, as you read in Kings and Chronicles, these treasures that David dedicated to the Lord would one day be brought into the temple that his son Solomon would build, gathered together into the house of the Lord. But I think there's something we can see that's a little bit bigger from what David does here. By gathering these treasures that he's, he's collected from these nations he's defeated, I think he was anticipating, or at least we can see something much greater that is perhaps not obvious from this passage. Both Isaiah and Haggai speak of the wealth of nations being, or, or the treasures of all nations being brought to, to, into God. God says, I will fill this house with glory. The silver and the gold is mine, says the Lord. And of course, much later, those men from the nations, those men from the east, those magi, would bring their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to young Jesus, painting that picture, signaling a fulfillment to come in Jesus. See, this chapter is about God saving his anointed king. We could say that salvation of this king, wherever he went, verse 14, made it possible for David to reign in righteousness and justice. Which leads us on to our final point, the future, where we read that David reigned. Through the defeat of David's enemies, God established David's kingdom. And we're told in verse 15 that David reigned or ruled over all Israel, Or we could say he was king over all Israel. What was David's rule like? We've already seen what Saul was like. What was David's rule like? Verse 15. The translation I used put it this way. He ruled with justice and righteousness. And I think we often see those words as two separate words. Because in the English they are two separate words. They have two separate meanings. But one commentator suggested that we view them as one. And I think it's incredibly helpful when we do so. In other words, we say David rules with a justice that is righteous. It's a little different, but I think when you compare, especially when you compare with some of the leaders that have gone before, I think it's significant. Saul and and others have ruled with justice that has been unrighteous. Eli's sons, what a disaster. Samuel's sons. The people wanted another king. They wanted a king to be like all the other nations. And Samuel said, another king that you choose will be no different from Eli's sons. We know different from Samuel's sons. There'll be anything like righteous. But now we see in God's anointed chosen king, David ruling in in a justice that is righteous for all his people.
And so we have David's kingdom that is now established. He's defeated. He's dedicated his victories to God. He is reigning in justice that is righteous. So where does that leave us? Fundamentally, it should leave us looking to Jesus. There are issues in this chapter. We weren't able to to go into it in detail, but particularly chapter 8, verse 4, as David does this thing with these chariots. There are issues at the end of chapter 8, as we read that David's sons were the chief ministers or the, or the, the priests. There are issues as we start to look at this story unfolding, and as we know the end of the story, we know how things go. There are the little hints that start to jump out that all is not going to be completely right in David's kingdom. Yes, he started out well. Yes, he's God's anointed. Yes, he's God's chosen. But all is not going to be forever right in David's kingdom. And so we're reminded, aren't we, that the world is waiting for a better king, a better king than David. We're reminded that we are still waiting for Jesus. Because only in Jesus will the kingdom be perfectly, a kingdom that is ruled with a justice that is righteous. Now we're not waiting for Jesus' first coming. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already had the victory at the cross. But we're waiting for his return when he will judge judge the world in righteousness. David points to Jesus in such an amazing way in this chapter. If we haven't seen things jumping out, I encourage you to reread this because it points so many ways to Jesus. But I want us to leave us with two questions that I think jump out of this chapter. The first question is, what will you do with God's anointed king? Not David, but Jesus. You know, God is merciful, God is patient. God promises to save his people in and through his anointed king. Yet at the same time, ruling in justice that is righteous means that one day God is going to judge all those who have turned their back on him. God is going to judge a world that has had no time for him. God is going to judge a world that has rejected his chosen and anointed King Jesus. And if we learn anything from this chapter, we should definitely learn that standing against God's chosen King will not end well. We've seen it in the four victories. Will you serve the King? Or will you scorn the king? The second question is, what do you do with those victories? What do you do with your victories? And if you're a Christian, we know, don't we, that we're victorious in Christ. We live in something of that victory now, but we are looking to a greater victory that is to come. God will establish his kingdom. He is able to save his people from all their enemies. But the question is, how do we respond? The question is, what do we do with those victories? How do we respond when your prayers are answered? How do we respond when God works in a situation that you just thought, I have no idea how this is going to end? How do we respond when God seems to do the impossible in your life, the thing that you never ever thought you'd be able to get rid of, and God does the miraculous in your life, the unexpected? How do we respond? How do we respond to those victories? How do we live in the light of the victory that we know we have to come? Well, this chapter shows it in such an amazing way, doesn't it? We respond like David. Your answered prayers, the resolution of a situation, knowing that God 
that God in Christ, it is God in Christ who gives you the victories should cause us to bring the only one response we should to come back to him. To bring all of our treasures and the wealth and the spoil and the, the victories that we have, to bring them back to him. We praise him, we thank him, we continue to look to him. You know, it's so easy, isn't it? We, we get a victory in our life, we thank God, and then the next time comes and we think, oh, I did it okay last time, I'll, I'll do it myself this time. No, no, that's not what it means to give our victories back to God. It means to continually live in the light of the victories that we have in Christ. We look away from ourselves and we look to him. We look to Jesus. We submit our lives to him. We hand the control of our life over to God's anointed king. There is nothing wrong with having and enjoying victories and successes in our lives. There's nothing wrong with things working out in our favour. As long as we know where to take those victories. As long as we don't use those victories to boast, to build ourselves up, to think that there's anything in us that can, that can satisfy, anything that can bring those things. What will we do with those victories? How do we live in the light of the victory that we have to come? We live our lives constantly coming back to Christ, knowing that we are fully dependent on him, knowing that it's him who sustains us, that it is him who gives us the victories, knowing that God will keep his promises to his people. And so we come back to him and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving the victories. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. How will you respond to the king? And what will you do with your victories? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we can read within your word. Thank you for the reminders that we have had this morning. We thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. We thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Our sins, they are many. But thank God your mercy is more. Speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. Show us something that we need to see. Help us to put these things into practice as we seek to live in light of the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. We're going to finish as the musicians lead us with a song. Um, It's a a wonderful song. I've just quoted. It's one of the lines from it. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Thank you.
Let's close with these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.